This is episode 85 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And we have an episode this fortnight about colour and lizards, sort of how they see colour, how they react to colour, but also their colour themselves and how that can uh, play around with how they uh, how they live their lives and potentially even split into new species. <laughs> I thought you were going to say how they live their lives and potentially how they die. <laughs> <laughs> and how no. their lives end. Yeah, well, I suppose, little... Actually, that's not too far from what the paper's getting at. There is a little bit of that in there. Yeah, there's always a, l- a little bit of death hanging over us. But yeah, I think we've got a good duo of papers. I think papers which exemplify the kind of reason that we started this podcast, trying to disentangle science. Because this second paper was extremely complicated. Yes. But should we save the chat on the second paper till the second paper until we get straight into the first one? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Which is a completely different... Um, uh, completely different kettle of fish i mean this is this is very much a a researcher perspective um sort of paper in my mind it's less about the ecology of the animal and more about our relationship and interaction with animals yeah so we have a paper by fondren swerk and putman it was published in 2019 in biotropica Clothing colour mediates lizard responses to humans in a tropical forest. So, tropical forest, Costa Rica, check. Wonderful setting to research some lizards. Lizards, wicked subject. In particular, we are looking at the water anole. So this is Anolis aquaticus, which I do believe people should remember from their strange ability to, to produce a sort of pocket of uh, air with their scales so they could breathe underwater for period. Well, I suppose that... Does it count as breathing underwater if you're taking the air with you? Like, if you have a scuba suit, is that breathing underwater? Or well, is that using a scuba suit? I think there's a difference between breathing underwater and breathing water. Ah, oh, okay. Well, these guys are breathing underwater. Yeah. Uh, that paper was crazy. And actually, the same author, um, it was Dr... Yeah, it was Dr. Lindsay Swirk who was yeah. authoring that note on the uh, underwater behaviour of this aptly named water anole. And yeah, she's back in this paper as an author. Obviously, yeah, the research on these crazy little lizards is ongoing. We also had a bit of discussion back in episode 49 about the name of the species because it has been changed by uh, some authors to Norops Aquaticus. So if you want discussion of that name change, uh, go. Yeah. we won't rehash it here, but it's controversial. We- as you might I, expect. I feel like we barely dug into it back in that episode anyway, because it's one of these taxonomical nomenclature controversies, which we tend oh, not to touch. The taxonomists on the phone, mate, they're livid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no. So um, this paper, like you say, we're looking at the interactions between humans and animals, specifically Costa Rica, as you mentioned, incredible place. It's got like two thirds of its um, land cover is already designated as uh, protected reserves for nature. And so, of course, it's a big spot for ecotourism. And yeah, one of the ideas in this paper was that 
Ecotourism, which in its definition is catering for tourists who wish to experience the natural environment without damaging it or disturbing its inhabitants. But this paper hinges around the idea that it can have unintended negative consequences for wildlife. And they actually mentioned a cool paper in the intro by Huang et al. 2011. And in that paper, they actually demonstrated that crested annals, female crested annals, which is Enolis crystallatus, when they were exposed to camera shutter noises, they actually decreased their display behavior because the sound of the shutter of a DSLR camera, to the lizard at least, resembles the sound of an American kestrel, which is one of their main predators. Yeah, see, it's really neat. The idea of ecotourism tourism being essentially non-consumptive or low, low impact you sort of have to start recalibrating what you count as impact because it's okay the the big stuff's been dealt with you know you're not going to you're not going to litter you're going to be chopping down forests to build a you know a, a hotel in the middle of the woods sort of thing but then but then it's sort of okay you go finer grain and finer grain and now you're getting down to uh, how are the animals living their lives and how are we impacting the actual day-to-day workings of yeah. animals so it's, it, You're it's right. a totally different scale it is it's nitty-gritty it really is the nitty-gritty and the danger being that our actions although we're not you know there's a difference between going out to costa rica with a massive long stick and just slapping every animal you can see and being right. a slight disturbance by taking pictures obviously one far outweighs the other in its severity however if you scale up you know hundreds of thousands of people want to be eco-tourists which is fantastic obviously like as an attitude brilliant but if there's going to be slight unintended consequences from one person it doesn't matter but once you scale that up to you know the industry that is eco-tourism you know that those images every time you take a picture with a shutter you could be freaking out the lizard right. and that's time it's not spending mating it's not spending feeding it's not spending foraging it's not spending flirting with other lizards because and it's too busy stress hiding response too you know you're, exactly. you're dealing with increased stress which can have detrimental impacts i think it's it's important you get these sorts of studies uh earlier rather than later because you it's very easy to think okay it's just it's just a few pictures it doesn't it, it, it's quite easy to pull yourself out of the wider context of not know because you're not going to know how many people this this animals come across over a year or over a week or whatever so it is it's important to have these these studies to really nail what those impacts could be because you can't just intuitively know no it's not that we have it's not something we have a sixth sense for and right yeah i have to say Two things about that paper. I listened to a bunch of calls because I thought we could insert one in the podcast if it does sound like a shutter sound. I couldn't find a kestrel sound that sounded like a shutter sound anywhere. I mean, they make this kind of like grinding noise sometimes. I don't know, maybe it's it's hard to explain. American kestrel specifically. Yeah, that's what they said in the paper. But I couldn't find any sort of shutter sounding noises. I don't doubt that they do make it. I did like the... uh, title of that paper though because you mentioned earlier on leave what is it take only pictures leave only footprints the title of that paper was take only pictures leave only fear (laughs) (laughs) oh that's good that's i like that that a lot yeah i'm just gonna play a few american kestrel sounds anyway for people to uh to judge for themselves and this I, i believe as this is an educational podcast uh, we're okay with with sort of Creative Commons. If this released. is your kestrel noise, don't be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and I, I'm, I'm getting the impression that a lot of them are squeakier than... Yeah. So maybe if you had a very old camera, which needed some oil, not that you oil cameras. <laughs> <laughs> I just dip mine in oil every time I get home. I'm going to, I'm just going to look up uh, classic Kestrel call because, um, because I, I feel like Eurasian Kestrels, no, they're pretty squeaky too. Um, yeah, I don't know, but you know, lizards, they got weird ears, don't they? Yeah. And also it doesn't necessarily, I mean... It doesn't have to be a perfect analog of a sound for it to be frightening. I mean, there's right. loads of there's loads of sounds which I find ominous, and I can't give you a clear answer as to why. Yeah, and certainly the the rapid repetition in the kestrel call you can see that reflecting the sort of rapid. Uh, uh, if they're taking multiple pictures, yeah, yeah that's probably because, it, I mean, isn't I, it? Is that okay? We may not own cameras that can really do that, but I do know a lot of people that do. <laughs> so <laughs> there is that. Yeah, there, there is a a repetition of quite. Probably quite high-pitched noise for the lizard, which you could see being reflected in the kestrel call, yeah. Mm, yeah. And so we're talking about these water anoles. And colour, we've talked about anole coloration a number of times, but colour plays a strong role in the signalling and communication of anoles. So particularly the dewlaps, which is this flap of skin underneath the chin. These are different colours and different animal species, and they use them as a means of communicating their abilities to other animals. Various various things can be communicated by these dewlaps. It's actually a lot more complicated than you'd think at the beginning. They can actually communicate effectively how good they are at fighting, um, and obviously there's a little bit of sexual selection with regards yeah. to sort of the impressiveness of the display. That's what I was going to. Did we? Did we? Was it animals we were looking at that we were talking no, about the honest signalling? That is a that was paper a different about, one. That was a spotted. Um, no, that's um, blue spotted guys, wasn't it? It was um, Yemen chameleons, chameleo. Mm, oh, Calitratus. It was them. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was just I was just thinking back to um, we did we did cover that paper. Anybody's dug into. Um, whether Anolis sort of specifically water animals, whether their signalling is like an honest thing where, where the brighter ones are actually faster and stronger and whatever, or whether it's more, yeah, yes. as you say, more that sort there of sexual is. selection angle and less about uh, honest signalling. So there's a line in this paper, in water animals specifically, dewlap size scales with traits implicated in intersexual combat and is hey. like and is likely used as an honest signal of fighting ability. And Awesome. Yeah, awesome. A um, couple of papers there, which you can find in this paper. So yeah. Wicked. It seems as though they are not mucking about. And the dewlap is very impressive in this species. It starts off at the beginning of the chin and it goes all the way down to like between the arms. It's absolutely massive and it's orange with uh sort of White yellow spots yellow spots you could say yeah 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 they are yellow aren't they because it's got white on its belly um and yeah very noticeable signal that the animals use and yeah they wanted to basically see obviously you've got an animal here who is using color in the signaling and communication mm -hmm. between individuals so it does it's stand to reason say again it's very visual too. It's extremely visual, yeah, which obviously means, yeah, they got good eyesight. And the idea behind this paper was that people in their 
clothing choices may be able to influence uh, some aspect of the animal's behavior based on the color of clothing that they're wearing. And this is an idea which seems pretty crazy, but actually there is evidence for it. There's evidence for it in birds. Uh, there's a paper where spiny-cheeked honey eaters, which is such a great name for a species, <laughs> they actually take flight later when they're approached by people wearing colors which match their red plumage. So it seems as though they have some kind of inherent bias towards red. They like red, or maybe red just makes them curious. Maybe red their favorite and they take off later when someone approaching them wearing red comes as opposed to i think it was yellow or tan in the paper yeah yeah so there's this prerequisite that animals can preferentially like color um and so they wanted to test this on these water animals and what they wanted what they did was they sent out research teams in groups of three and they dressed them wearing either blue, green or orange shirts. And they wanted to see whether or not this affected the animal's fear of peoples. And they did that by seeing whether or not the different colored teams had a higher success rate with captures, as in were more captures successful versus failed. And also, did they just catch more lizards wearing a particular color? Yeah, so it was it was also sightings as well. So just it's a whole process of how many did you see, how many did you actually sort of successfully obtain, <laughs> and interestingly, the uh, sex bias between captured. So they could they couldn't uh, look at the one how it changed with the ones they didn't capture because you haven't captured them, so you don't know. But you could with the uh, ones you did capture and how that skewed depending on what color you were wearing. Mm-hmm. And I suppose not crazy surprising results given the literature literature on birds, but still really, really interesting to see it in lizards, right? Oh, yeah, really cool. So blue and green, uh, much lower uh, sightings per hour. I mean, we were looking at what's, what's, what's the mean for blue? Like three and a half animals per hour? And then green sitting around the same. Orange, it jumps up to like four and a half, almost five in terms of, uh, yeah, mean, mean animals per hour. So you're going to spot more lizards if you're wearing orange, it appears. That's a good start. Yep, yep, yep. And that is, you know, significant finding. They, they, you know, statistically proven that if you wear orange, you see more animals, which is... Yeah, huge finding. And then in sort of collaboration with that, they also found that they caught more. They had a higher proportion of captures when wearing orange. So if they attempted to catch a lizard, they were more likely to succeed if they were wearing orange than if they were wearing either of the other colours, which suggests that the animals are perhaps somehow dazzled or enamoured with the colour orange to a point where you can get closer before they try and get away. Yeah, yeah. They're just a sort of bit curious or anything Maybe along those lines. Just that curiosity. extra bit of delay. It, it, it's so capture success rates for the green and blue, 66, 63%. Then that jumps to 80% when wearing orange. And it's important to mention that it's not, you know, these these differences weren't down to who was wearing the colour or the sort of composition of the team in terms of team members. They controlled for all of that with some nice randomization and had that accounted for in the model. So it is looking like it's the colour that's driving this this difference in capture success rather than uh, particular skilled individuals or anything along those lines. So even habitat, they also controlled for that. It's across several different habitats too. 
Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, there we have it. The colour of clothing you wear can affect how easily you can capture water annals. So if you're cruising down the streams of Costa Rica looking for brightly coloured dewlapped annals on sticks overcrossing the water and you're hoping to grab some, wear orange and you're most likely to be met well, with success. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the chances are wear a colour which is matching the sort of signalling colour of the species you're you're looking for, potentially. Because, I mean, it, the the other important thing that this paper draws out is the people wearing green, they did as badly as people wearing blue. Now, blue is quite a standout, weird colour to be in the middle, to see in the middle of the forest, right? It, it's, okay, maybe a bit of sky, and often or not, uh, water's not going to be blue-blue in a forested environment. So green, you're thinking, okay, camouflage, right? They, they picked a colour which best represented the sort of surrounding forest. And yet the animals were very good at spotting it and evading capture to the same point as blue. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's that's sort of suggesting that uh, human form and human movement is spookier and they can sort of pick that out regardless of any sort of camouflage or that the green didn't match perfectly or it had different reflective properties or something along those lines. But it was interesting to see that something more geared towards camouflage performed worse than something geared towards uh, a sort of social communication cue. Yeah, I mean, it's a very definitive result. Um, And I wonder in the future, will there be signs up in national parks? You know, you walk into the park, you see the sign that says, don't feed the animals, don't carry things, don't let the monkeys see you've got food because they'll wreck your whole life. And you might also see one that says, don't wear orange because you'll make our annals frisky and they will waste time doing things other than being annals. So you're you're taking it as orange as being the the one not to not to wear. Well, yeah, I think because this the is one... the interesting way to twist it, right? Because if you say <laughs> if wear, you, everyone's uh, wearing orange, they're going to be overstimulated. Orange. Uh, so are they being overstimulated, or are is this a way of mitigating the stress and uh, flight responses that people going through a forest would elicit in animals? Yeah, I don't know. I would imagine. I, I mean, I guess it depends on whether or not they're completely transfixed by the orange to a point where they feel no fear, or whether they realise at some point because not all the captures were one hundred percent. So I don't think right. orange is going to have this hypnotic, dreamlike but effect. That is capturing. That is capturing an animal. That is that is a lot more than just walking by and seeing it. Mm, yeah. Yeah, true. That's true. Maybe orange would be better. Maybe it's better to create a kind of utopia where everyone wears the colours that slightly arouse them. Yeah. Or that's that's just not uh, even remotely a, a suitable policy because another animal in that forest hates orange. Like, oh, it drives it mad, infuriates it. It depends what kind of animal that is. Yeah. If it's like a giant sort of bear I don't know a bear yeah if yeah. it's a bear I mean you've got to have a trade off if you're going to incite the bears but calm down the animals like that's not so, a world I want to live in <laughs> I don't know sometimes sometimes those prices just have to be paid the price mm. of an angry bear to keep your animals but, chill yeah and I think like obviously at the beginning of this episode we were saying you know oh You've got to be mindful of these things. Yes. Okay, that's true. And obviously, we're not about to advocate that it's better to hit an animal with a stick than it is to walk past it with a particularly colored t-shirt. Only like there is information in the minutiae of these things. And it's not to say that this is like some hugely important thing, which is going to massively alter the way we behave in uh, natural parks. But 
Um, it's just an interesting consideration and something which, you know, as the scale of human influence is only set to rise, it's probably worth considering in certain places if there's particularly vulnerable animals that right. we can do things which don't affect their behaviour rather than do. Yeah, no, I think it's it, it's exactly that. It's one that is highlighting how these things can have an impact. In this case, is is it enough of an impact to, to warrant changes in behaviour? I don't know. But what it is showing is there is an impact and that is something you should be aware of. Now mm. you sort of think, okay, new system. Okay, you're sitting in the middle of I don't know, Snowdonia, and you don't want to spook whatever lives in Snowdonia. I can't even think of a single animal. There are no animals in Snowdonia. Red kite. Yeah, saw a red kite yesterday. You don't want to scare any red kite. Do you want to wear a big red kite outfit to keep them chill? Or do you want to do something that you can be visible from a long distance so they can avoid you? If you go out wearing a big red kite outfit, they're going to peck you after death. But this is, you know, it, it's the sort of thing that it, it stimulates more questions about other places, like what else have we missed in terms of impact? Hmm. And it, 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 it is very interesting to see something that's potentially quite small in terms of colour choice. You know, that's quite a small decision to make. Hmm. It's, it's a good, uh, like, prompt, if you see what I mean. It's a good... It's honestly just, an, yeah, it's an interesting thing that we can now think about. I have to admit, I hadn't given a second's thought to, aside from, you know, bullfighting that the clothing might affect. I, I was thinking about it in the sort of realm of my own field work, but I don't yeah. think it matters. I don't think it matters what color I wear to catch snakes. They will evade me 100% regardless. <laughs> right. But this see, that's, that's a situation where your detection probabilities are so low anyway. Yeah. That it's, okay, change is going to be marginal so you might not have to worry maybe i need to start dressing up like an escalapian snake although i don't think they yeah. have that social e- element to their behavior that would influence it but well, maybe see, if i just maybe that's my a scent yellow. maybe it's not visual maybe it's scent and you Could should be, be just rubbing escalapian snakes all over yourself before you head out to find some more that would be a nice ritual to get into yeah but that's exactly the point. That would be a whole other aspect to look at whether different scents have a different impact on animal disturbance. I mean, we've seen uh, different senses, different scents. Yeah, maybe there's another. No- I'm sure. Sh- I mean, obviously, there must be attractive noises you can make, but not probably well, not for I a mean, snake. The, the the classic example, I think, for birds is is the pushing uh, thing, the, the the fake alarm call for chickadees, the mobbing call. That works in the in the states and North America for getting all the little songbirds to stare at you because they you, they think you're a chickadee saying get this get this predator <laughs> like that's that's something that people use to see birds but I mean I'm I sure there's I'm sure there's been studies looking at I it not that I'm aware of, of but it's it's those sorts of little things it's like okay if one person does it not too much of an impact if two hundred people do it is that going to be a problem. I want to do it with those fighting frogs in South America that we talked about. I want to play like a sort of a cool Battle which music. arouses fury. Yeah. <laughs> and then have see all the livid frogs coming out of the undergrowth trying to battle me. <laughs> That'd be great. Come on, then. Come on, frogs. Yeah. Taking them all on. Sweet. So, yeah, I mean, an interesting dynamic, cool Seriously paper. Interesting. Color, yeah. The color you wear can influence um the animals you capture fascinating absolutely fascinating um 
So yeah, let's move on. Let's uh, let's talk some more about coloration. This time in some geckos. This paper is by Folgione, Buglione, Ripper, Trapanese, Petrelli, Monti, Aria, Del Guidici, and Maselli. Apologies for those pronunciations. 2019 selection for background matching drives sympatric speciation in wool gecko published in Scientific Report. So yeah. Yeah, before we get to, because this is the paper I was on about earlier, which is dense, um, let's just introduce the lizard, right? The wool gecko, Tarantola mauritanica, mauritanica, obviously from sort of Mediterranean realm. It's a common... Yeah, we, we, this is this is South Italy, South Italy. this studies, studies setting, yeah. Very common, medium-sized lizard, very widely distributed in the Western Mediterranean. And yeah, as you said, Southern Italy, we're in Punta Licosa which is characterized by Mediterranean vegetation, not medveg, olive tree cultivation, rural buildings and stone walls. It is medveg, but not the kind you put in the oven to make a nice lasagna. So these geckos are extremely variable in color, extremely variable. Uh, There's light ones and there's dark ones and there's intermediate brown ones. We are going to be interested in predominantly the pale ones and the dark ones because they are at the sort of two ends of this. Well, it's not even necessarily a, a, a spectrum. There really are light ones, dark ones, and then the intermediate ones are a spectrum in the middle. But there are some mm-hmm. definite light ones and some definite dark ones. And the differences between these geckos is very dramatic. It, they literally do look like different species at a glance. Would you agree? I'm, I'm, I'm finding the picture. There's, there's so much sunlight coming in through the window. I can barely see the dark one in the in its little... You can't see the dark one in the day. Well, that's interesting because that's not the problem the predators have. <laughs> <laughs> I can't see Oh, anything. no, wait. The dark one is good at hiding in the day. Anyway, yeah. This was an extremely thorough paper that they did. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's one thing to call out is how this is almost like four different studies folded into one mega paper to cover a lot of different aspects and and really I, I suppose really do a good job indicating there's something very interesting going on here and there might we might be witnessing this sort of speciation before your eyes sort of thing yeah the paper reads like they had a cool idea and everything they tried just kind of backed up their suspicions and so they just never yeah. stopped they just kept going and showing new exciting ways in which these sort of um well they're, they're one population of geckos but they seem, well, okay, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the crux of the paper. The crux of the paper is there's these two differently colored geckos and the differences between their behaviors are so great that they appear that they might be beginning to speciate. So this might be a precursor yeah. to speciation. Multiple changes, multiple avenues of change all reinforcing a uh, separation. Yeah. Yeah, so for a long time, well, not for that long, but for a little while, people have been talking about, okay, these this these wall geckos, there seems to be two sort of morphs. And these morphs, obviously, we're talking yeah, about the morphs. pale and the dark. They seem to have differed in their behavior quite significantly, right? So we've talked about geckos before. Nocturnal geckos having an ability. We're usually talking about house geckos when we talk about this kind of stuff. But many of them have adapted to... Well, a lot of them were diurnal, sorry, nocturnal anyway. But many geckos have adapted to take advantage of artificial lighting on the walls of buildings because it's a light source at night, it attracts insects, and it provides to be a very fruitful hunting ground. 
for geckos. So there's a really good um, adaptive reason why they should elect to hang around on walls at night near lights because they can get a lot of excess, excess food. In the case of this species, the wool gecko, what's actually happened is there's pale geckos and there's still dark geckos and the pale ones have actually adapted to become nocturnal so they can take advantage of this artificial light while the dark ones have maintained a diurnal lifestyle where they take Mm. advantage of hiding on the bark of trees which is much darker brown the pale geckos are pale because they can hide on walls which are generally you know like sort of creamy colored or white yeah you're paler like plaster sort of colors yeah 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 so they've got to a point now uh they call it in the paper temporal segregation literally just means differences in time basically where we got nocturnal pale geckos and diurnal dark geckos and the first thing they wanted to do was to make sure that actually in fact they were looking at one species right because it is possible that they could just have some kind of cryptic speciation already having occurred and that you could see it in the yeah, genes see how <laughs> this is the bit that really um i think is wicked like so many studies you see is like okay we have a population and they're studying this population and always in the back of your mind it's like you don't actually know how individuals are related to each other or anything you know, that's that's something we brought up in, in our King Cobra papers. We don't actually know the relationship between these, these tracked individuals. So you don't know whether it's a certain group that are related moving one way and another group doing something else. This, the very first assumption, okay, are we working with a species? Where do our geckos fit in it? I love how foundational that first question is. Okay, it's all, you know, I, I get why a lot of studies don't do it because it's a lot of work and it costs a lot of money to do genetic stuff, but wicked way to start okay what are we working with base principles (laughs) really respect that yeah and it it worked well i mean what their genetic investigations we won't go into too much detail with it um because it's extremely complicated but the long and short of it is that they are dealing with one species that they are although there are differences genetically they are not sort of what you would consider to be the differences between different species and um yeah they've got a little figure um which shows neutral neutral microsatellite markers revealed that only the diurnal dark trunk population forms a genetically distinct group. Now that is all of yes. them. Diurnal slash dark slash trunk. Oh, diurnal dark trunk. Oh no, because no, 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 no. It's saying it. I think what it's getting at is diurnal dark trunk ones can be considered their own little ah, uh, aside. thing. But the issue is you've got these intermediate ones that go from the. Uh, you know, the nocturnal pale into this intermediate uh, sort of mixed one. There are a few of them, but those, I think it's basically saying they can't be confident that what they're seeing genetically isn't a cline from one to the other. Mm. But the ones on the, the trees do seem to be the most distinct. Mm. Which makes sense, because, I mean, if that, you know, that's going to be where they are coming from naturally. So then it makes sense that there is a cline towards something else because mm. i mean you know it's a it's a pull essentially so that does that does make sense but it's it's again it's early days right it's it's a speciation in progress mm-hmm. so if you were to have found it then they would be separate species but because there is a cline it's it's an ongoing process potentially right yeah right okay and that's essentially the evidence in this paper is suggesting that there is something ongoing mm. so we talked about the Diurnal versus nocturnal behavior. But they actually thought that that wasn't the biggest um, driver behind the differences they're beginning to see genetically in the different groups. Um, 
they actually thought what was probably having a much bigger effect was predation because of the yeah because of the obviously strong pressure that predation puts on geckos and in order to evidence this they actually did a little plasticine study didn't they they did so you know in, in the background they've got this study where they're going out day and night checking which they're marking and recapturing their geckos yeah so go out mark the ones they see at night come back in the day how many did you see okay none come back next night okay we're seeing some of the pale ones on the wall at night again the same but the reverse with the uh, darker trunk ones going out during the day mark them come back at night oh there's none there come back next day okay there's some recaptured so you know that there's this distinction where they are as well as temporally we've got this situation where there's different predators in each scenario too so the pale uh, nocturnal geckos are facing more terrestrial predators correct that's right yeah things like things like rats basically whereas the ones in the forest at at during the day the darker ones in the forest they're dealing with more um avian predators kestrels that sort of thing kestrels owls that sort of stuff and a plasticine you take some plasticine models you make some of them dark some of them pale and then you place them in these two different habitats and at different uh, different times, and wait, they did they didn't do different times. It was just the two uh, area comparisons. What correct? they did, they did they did both. So they put pale geckos on the both. house at cool. night. They put pale geckos yep. on the tree during the day. They put dark yep. geckos on the house at night and dark geckos in the tree during the day. So they were only checking to see um, the influence of the place, really. Um, yes. So yeah, they tried both in in both places, but. Um, yeah, they yeah. So no, they were testing. They were testing each gecko in each circumstance. And as you say, uh-huh. the predation kind of showed what you would expect, right? So if you're a pale gecko on a house at night, the environment you're adapted to because you're nice and light coloured is extremely rare that one of those para- uh, models got um, predated. A light model on a house because it, it's you know it's, it's camouflage, so a tiny percentage. Um, conversely, if you're a pale gecko on a tree during the day, you get spotted. Uh, nearly half got predated. Then you got dark geckos. If you put a dark gecko adapted to be on a tree, if you put that on a house at night, almost 100% of them got eaten. Extremely, extremely, extremely obvious to predators. And as you said, they're terrestrial predators. Things like rats going up there, attacking them. Yeah. Uh, They also found that the dark geckos, if they left a dark gecko on the tree during the day, they would also get eaten about 50% of the time. And I think that just speaks to the fact that if there's a gecko on the wall of a, on the side of a tree during the day and it's, it's in any way conspicuous, a, a bird or something is going to come and eat it. Right. So we've got this potentially there is a different predate, sort of base predation level going on anyway in the natural environments. But I think what's really cool is because of the high, high uh, rate of predation of the darker geckos when they're on walls, you've got this really strong selective pressure to shift that coloration if it's what's responsible for those high predation rates. And it certainly does look that way. So we have really strong evidence that there is a driver, like very strong driver, 100% of the plasticine models getting taken by some sort of predator or just going completely missing. So, okay, you send out 20, 20 exploratory geckos, off they go, venturing forth from their forest, their safe forest hideaway. Are they a mixture of colours? No, they're all. They're, well, I suppose they should be. What about be, if, they, what about if the... twenty went and two of them were pale and eighteen of them were dark, and they thought, "Let's yeah. try it out on this house tonight, boys." See what's going on. Eighteen darker geckos wiped out first night. 
the two, uh, they're traumatized, but they're going to make a go of it, and they start their new life on the on the walls. And all their offspring are slightly paler too. Mm. Yep, and they seem to f- presuming, of course, you know, you know, recessive dominant gene sort of stuff, and all that complexity. Mate, all of that stuff doesn't matter because if they give, but, if they lay any eggs which hatch out to be dark babies, and those babies think gone. think about giving it a go on the wall where mummy and daddy live, good luck, no chance. Yeah, that camouflage is so critical. Or appears so critical to their survival. Exactly. But interestingly, you know, there are some intermediate geckos mixing around too. So there is still this this presence of a sort of cline in in dark to light geckos, and we're not entirely sure how their survival is on either scenario because they didn't test that. Mm. Um, I tell you one thing, they did test though. They tested their color changing abilities, didn't they? Oh yes, that's a whole. I this again, about this that. would that's be a whole another happily be aspect. another whole, whole paper. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, the long and short of that is they were like, okay, well, what about if these geckos are only pale because they're on the wall at night? As far as they know, it could be... Obviously, they did the mark recapture thing, which showed that they were the same pale geckos going out at night and this, the pale geckos weren't coming out in the day. But in order to make sure, they thought, okay, well, we'll test their color changing capabilities. So they put the individuals first in uh, a really light colored... Was it first dark, then light? They did one, then the other. And uh, they wanted to see whether or not they could change. And sure enough, the light ones were really good at going light. The dark ones were much more capable of going dark. Um, and basically what they found was that the the variation in their color, their base color is so wide between the pale ones and the brown ones that they can no longer color match the one that they're not. So a pale gecko can't go so dark as to match a tree and the dark ones can't go so pale as to match a wall. So although yeah, they have yeah, some the- degree of color changing capability in order to match their surroundings, which is impressive, it's not as big as the divide that's been created by this pressure from predation. Yeah. And, well, and the, the difference between these two environments, because you could still have that, that difference in predation by other means that isn't to do with background matching. Like if, if they were dark buildings and dark um, forests, differences in predation would... Uh, lead to different changes, whereas because it's a colour difference, it's leading to an exaggeration in the colour difference of the geckos. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially what they're painting here is a picture of geckos, which are more than capable of interbreeding, but because of a combination of behaviour, behavioural things like, you know, one's, ni- one's nocturnal, one's diurnal, and the fact that they are different colours and they're under different predation pressures, they're essentially just being forced gradually into you know, splitting off and what they think is the beginning of a sympatric speciation, sympatric speciation being where two new species are born out of one original uh, individual species, despite the fact that they still live together at the same time in the same place, which is very rare. And can essentially be in contact with each other. That's, that's the critical aspect. They can be in contact with each other. Sympatico. But the sort of, we're assuming that the intermediate ones are also like they don't benefit from either of the advantages either the dark or the pale geckos get, right? Because if the intermediate ones can do both, then that would relax this pressure to be one or the other and allow those intermediate ones to have the flexibility to use whatever habitat they so please. Exactly. Well, no, absolutely fascinating paper, exceptionally thorough, covers all sorts of cool aspects. I hope we did most of it justice. I feel like there's even more. We didn't talk about the um, the concentration of the hormone that controls melanin. Oh yeah. So yeah, I, this is just 
I mean, if anyone has an interest in color change, I think this is quite a big deal. Um, they basically found out that melanocytes stimulating hormone, which has been kind of implicated in color change for a long time. It's, this, it's been thought to have an influence over uh, the melanophores and how they appear. And they just, they, they did some assays. And what they've determined is that um, the amount of melanocytes stimulating hormone uh, was different between groups uh, active in the day and the night, the pale geckos and the uh, dark trunk geckos, there was a significant effect where I think the um, dark ones had a significant amount more of this melanocyte stimulating hormone and therefore um, they're darker. So they've basically identified what's driving the, the darkness versus paleness in this gecko species. Well, basically how, how, they're, um, how they're achieving it. Yeah. So essentially the darker geckos have uh, a greater ability to modulate their color. And this is because they have more melanin and the melanin is directly related to the level of this hormone in the body. Yeah. I don't know whether or not it's difficult. I don't know which came first, actually, to be honest, the hormone or the melanin, because is the hormone Uh, responsible for the development of the melanin, the melanin, or is it responsible for the managing of the melanin once it's there? I'm not sure. And therefore the, the color change capability. Yeah. But if you don't have the melanin to begin with, you don't have that option to be as flexible. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting that the darker geckos uh, have basically a greater capacity for colour change. I mean, I suppose that makes a lot of sense in a forest environment too, doesn't it? Yeah. Ah, okay. So, I just did a quick Google. Melanocyte stimulating hormone. In response to ultraviolet radiation, your body can produce melanocyte stimulating hormone and what happens is when your body is exposed to increased levels of melanocyte stimulating hormone specialized skill skin cells called melanocytes produce melanin so essentially it could well be that it's just spending out time outside in the sun that's doing it to these individual geckos as well to some extent ah which makes sense because they're the diurnal ones as opposed to the nocturnal ones which are making use of the artificial light yeah i.e lights that do not produce uv can also suppress appetite so uh yeah maybe that's why you don't feel so hungry after a day on the beach (laughs) (laughs) well no that's because you had an ice cream yeah true that all right so i think that concludes our episode on coloration um yeah fantastic pair of papers nice to talk about animal coloration super, super interesting And uh, yeah, should we, from one gecko that specialises on, specialises in hanging around on walls to a new gecko with bent toes. Yep. To our species of the bi Specialises on having bent toes. <laughs> <laughs> so this paper is by Liu and Rao, and it's entitled A New Species of Certidactylus from Yunnan, China, published in Zoo Keys 2021. Brand new. Yeah. Now... This, I, I feel like we routinely ter- return to sort of Yunnan and sort of southern China more broadly for our species of the bi week. There is a huge number of undescribed species, and I believe Sododactylus is one of those sort of groups which uh, you can basically call mi- micro endemic, I suppose. It, it's. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, and you're right about yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of stuff coming from like sort of southeast 
or South China, Yunnan. And I mean, they've got the Kunming Natural History Museum uh, in Kunming, mm-hmm. which is like super close by. And I think there's a lot of keen herpetologists there. So combine that with the fact that you've got a hotbed of endemism. Um, yeah, bit of a perfect storm for new species, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and this species. I mean, there's a whole um, there's a whole load of Cetacodactylus species. I'm not sure how many there actually are now, but there's tons. Uh, well, the thing is, no matter what number you're saying, it's going to be lower than what it is in two weeks' time as they as they emerge, redescribed from these cast land, you know, cast limestone systems. It's it's an ever moving target, it seems. Yeah, and uh, yeah, yeah. But this new one. Which is from, oh, it's really right on the border with Myanmar. Um, yeah, sort of west, western Yunnan. Uh, it's currently only known from the type locality, which is in Zhenkang County. Zhenkang County, Yunnan province, China. And what have they called it? Cetodactylus zhenkangensis. Which makes sense. Because it's the <laughs> Cetodactylus from Zhenkang, hence ensis, uh, which is perfect, really. Um, you want to tell it? Apart from its congeners, your best bet is check how many femoral pores the males have got. They've got a little bit less than... Uh, could you could you tell me what a femoral pore is, please? Yeah, so if you turn a gecko upside down... Yep. And you look at its cloaca. Okay. Got the cloaca there? Yep. Yeah, the femoral region is uh, a bit... On the femur, I think it is. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, it's like the inside of the leg. That's that's the way they've told these ones apart. Yes, there are pores wow. there, which I think I think they're involved with um, probably sexual communications of sorts, uh, hormones mm-hmm. and things. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You can tell them apart based on the femoral pores. Um, there's a there's a a whole load of other characters as well, but femoral pores is one of the ones they recommend. And this is a beautiful gecko, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, so I mean, we're talking about a gecko which is around, oh, sort of 80 to 90 millimetres SVL with an additional, like, 90, almost 100 mil tail. So, you know, this is a, this is a pretty reasonably sized, uh, reasonably sized gecko. We are working with a pattern which, Gosh, um, it's hard to describe. It's like it's hard to decide which is the base color and which is the pattern. I think if you say there's a base color of yellow with brown blotches, I think that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I suppose. But the yellow between the splotches fades out to a, to a paler, almost gray white. It almost is. Oh gosh, it is very hard to describe. I'm trying to think of it. It feels like something that has been like a solid surface that's sort of been cracked open, but then slightly melted, so they're softer edges. Hmm. Yeah, like a nice Edam cheese. I suppose like an Edam or like the surface of, of like lavery sort of mm. It is, it's got that irregular patterning that you would sort of link to like crocodile scales, but not that scaly. Yeah. Because obviously the gecko scales are much more, you know, they're smaller and not like crocodiles at all. But... That irregular random pattern of splotches and each one surrounded by this this yellow outline, yeah. Mm. Um, sort of black and white stripy tail for some reason. Um, um, well, presumably to get grabbed in preference to the so, rest right? of it, right? Yeah, it looks just like the tail of a baby toke gecko. Yeah, 
in fact, oh, you know what these guys look like? The the coloration, they're not dissimilar from leopard gecko yeah. markings. Yeah, there's definitely a similarity yeah. there. Yeah. That sort of colorway too. Yeah. Beautiful golden eyes. So Yeah. Certidactylus zenkangensis. And, you know, it's from these cast environments, big, high rock faces, nice gray rocks in forests. With its tiny bent toes. Tiny little bent toes. Um... Yeah, there's loads more cast formations in Yunnan, some of which are insufficiently surveyed. They're still looking for more species. They expect to find more. Uh, yeah, they don't say a huge amount about the sort of environment they found it in. All specimens were found at night between 7 and 9. Classic survey hours. After dinner, but not too late. On limestone <laughs> cliffs of the cast formations, surrounding habitat, primary forest with a stream nearby. Never seen eggs or juveniles. So uh, as far as we know, the juveniles are fluorescent red Although that seems unlikely given <laughs> the fluorescent red would have a higher detection probability than a little cryptic yeah. Certidactylus, probably. Yeah, they're probably not red. Cool, there we go. New species of Certidactylus, Certidactylus zenkangensis. Very nice. Yeah, awesome. All right, any other business? Any other business? I think we had a correction. So we had a, had a message over Twitter from uh, Mark Schertz who was giving us some more details. We, we were saying about I think it was over last week or week before we had a species of the bye week which had the species name in the title. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, and Mark's we got were, a take we on were, this, has he? Well, he's, he's just explaining why it's the case that they don't tend to be there. And essentially, historically, it was the case where that would, if you were to put the tit- the name in the title, the name technically uh, came before the formal description. So it's basically this this scenario where titles of papers were published before the actual paper was published, i.e. the description, and you'd have this issue with with names and descriptions not tallying up. Um, Wait, so if you describe a species, but you've already put its name on a title of a paper, what, people are aware of the, t- the name before they're aware of the species? Is that the issue? Well, it there's, there's, a, there's a strange latin term, nomen nundum, which is allegedly translating as naked, naked name. Oh. Um, yeah, so you would there would be the creation of these names, but if the description isn't sort of accepted, you'd have a whole bunch of names without any sort of meaning meaning to back it up. So I suppose that's less of an issue now, where paper and title can be published at the same time instantly, with no need for it. It it feels like a artifact of the print era mm, a little bit. Yeah, I do um, like the fact that there's a kind of legitimate reason why we shouldn't have the names in the papers because as you know i don't like it just solely for the spoiler issue right but so he's basically saying saying that um people are still hesitant because they don't want to risk their name being sort of cast aside because of it coming before the actual um the actual description itself and that's also why it can be missing from abstracts and things um yeah cool thanks mark i also have some any other business um did you catch up with the fact... Now, Ben, are you a Pokemon man? Were you ever a Pokemon man? Pokemans? Yeah. You like Pokemon? Like little little Pikachu. Oh, yeah, you know. I'm, I'm familiar with, with the Pokemans. Did you did you Pokemans as a child? Were you into the Pokemons? I, po- I poke- Pokemaned a little as, as a child. Yeah, you Pokemon as much as everyone else. That's cool. Well, this will interest you. Uh, I'm curious to see what you think about it, actually. Three new species. If it's a species described <laughs> named after Pokemon... Yeah. I'm not going to be impressed. But wait for if it. If they've named a snake Ekans, I'm done. <laughs> I'm flipping the table. I'm leaving. You can- 
<laughs> so um, there's been three new species of beetle described uh, yeah. by uh, Dr. Darren Pollock of Eastern New Mexico Uni and his colleague Yun Xiao, who is a PhD student at Australian National University. And they've named three species in an Australian genus of beetles after the Pokemon franchise's legendary birds, the OG legendary birds, Moltres, Articuno and Zapdos. There are now three beetles in existence whose scientific names are Binburum Articuno, Binburum Moltres and Binburum Zapdos. And the reason they've been Hold called up. this is because they... they're thought to be rare. So they're rare like okay. the rare Pokemons. Okay. They're rare like the rare Pokemons. This is... Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not too much of a fan, to be honest. No, I mean, <laughs> I do like the Pokemon. To, I'm, I'm, like... Looking, I'm looking at bug Pokemon and, well, I mean, those names are better than these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah perhaps they could have named it after the if they had like a thing with bugs but i don't know we had that email quite recently i can't remember who from which just basically said that sometimes it's okay in in beetles and things to have names which are uh, it's not as bad to have like patronyms or other silly sort of creations because there's so many species they're so unbelievably species speciose that you know they've got to be called something. yeah but i mean yeah, yeah. my my sort of knee jerk was like Ah, uh, okay. But, you know, I guess you've got to call them something. And I don't know, I do like Pokemon. I think it would be hypocritical of me to be like be totally behind Pokemon names, but against patronyms. So I'm not going to be too vociferous in my support. <laughs> but nevertheless, I mean, I love Pokemon. So it is yeah, kind of I, cool. I, I, can't, I can't say and endorse things being named after fictional like people or creatures i suppose fictional creatures i suppose i actually have less of an issue with because then you have things that are named after mythical beasts and stuff which i have less of an issue with for some reason yeah i guess you but only have only to wait in the place that would where those myths originate like it would feel very odd if you were naming something from like southeast asia after a sort of mythical or legendary creature from that has a European origin. Yeah. Or vice versa. Tremerosaurus Loch Nessii would be pretty jarring. Yeah, right, right. Or naming a new water snake Loch Ness. Like, stuff like that would would strike me as weird, but I would be okay with it in in the right context. Okay, and um, I think the more important question... So the Pokemon one is, now you're getting at, is Pokemon enough of a, a sort of touchstone, or is it just still a corporate brand? Well, I think you'd only have to wait 10 to 15 generations for the kind of mythos of Pokemon to really set root in our culture. And you might find... Perhaps. I don't know. It's hard to say. More importantly, which is your favourite, Articuno, Zapdos or Moltres? Mate, I am unfamiliar with these bird Pokemon. No, you're not. How do you Come on. How do, you spell, how do you spell these? Here, I'll What's send the you a link. One? I'll send you a link and you can go, scroll down and you can decide which is your favourite. Because that's the burning question. I'm sending it in the Skype chat. Articuno is the blue one. Ice bird. Zapdos is the electric bird. Moltres is the firebird. Um, <laughs> I love these beetles. <laughs> the hard cut between like scientific, um, yeah, you know, b pinned beetles to like goofy Pokemon. Um, I'm going Zapdos, Zapdos all the way. Really, man, that's crazy. Yeah. That's my least favorite. I'm definitely. Really? Too the, angular. The, little, the blue one's hilariously plump. 
and looks bottom heavy. It doesn't look like it should be able to fly. Uh, the the flaming one, it looks like it's it's got a horse mane, which I'm just not about. Yeah, it's not the most. Um, it's not the best Zapdos, angle. Zapdos, you've got absurdity in terms of geometry and um, um, anatomy, and I respect absurdity in my fictional creatures. Fair man. But then it has little pants too. So I mean, come on. Mm, yeah, that's cool. I like Moltres, Spire. It's a cool Pokemon card as well. Okay, so <laughs> any other business beyond Pokemans? That took ages. Um, <laughs> hit, oh, yeah. Hit the, real, the real information. One other thing. Um, I went on an episode of Dude Nature podcast. If you've not heard of Dude Nature and you're over 18, it's a good nature podcast. Um, really, really entertaining. Two guys, two twins who are uh, really cool guys, and they basically just yeah do podcasts about different nature related themes a mixture of interviews and just like chit chat and they do research um yeah entertaining um sort of reverent podcast i went on as a guest for an episode so i'll share the link to that in the show notes awesome talked about snakes and stuff well i mean what else are you gonna do that's all i really talk about so yeah 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 that and that and ekans Ekans, yeah. That was clever, though. I mean, it, I didn't realise that Ekans was snake backwards until I was about 25. Genius. Yeah. Genius. And then Arbok is Cobra. Ratata? Cobra backwards. It's got rat in the name. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm still aghast. <laughs> Let's leave it there. I think all that needs to be said is if you want to get in touch with us, you can. Highlights at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And if you want to give us any corrections, they're always gratefully received. We do get things wrong. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Please, corrections. Yes. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening. Awesome. Thanks for listening. <laughs>